0: Hi, Spina, how are you?
1: The tape is rolling.
0: The tape is rolling. (laughs) I can do this for professional purposes, but hi, how are you? I'm good. So thank you for um, being here, taking the time and the energy to come here from uh, Brooklyn to Queens. My pleasure. Thank you, thank you. I hope I can see you. There we go. Um, How are you feeling in the middle of the week on a Wednesday, on a non-gig, non-having gig day? Well...
1: I'm always working. <laughs> always working. <laughs> I actually had a gig last night. Okay. and And um, the gigs have been consecutive, so I feel like I'm just in a constant flow of work right now.
0: Oh, that's a good thing, though. We can't complain. Um, I was wondering, though, how, if you're not on the road, if you're not on tour, what a regular, if there's such a thing as a regular um, week in DJ Spinner's life would look like?
1: A regular week in my life? I wish I could say that I had a lot of downtime, but I really just like to chill, you know? Um, I really value uh, rest time because Mm -hmm. I work so hard. Um, And that could be Netflixing. It could be, you know, reading a book. It could be literally just chilling. (laughs) (laughs) Literally.
0: (laughs) Netflixing. I like the fact that it's a verb now. And also I got to say hi to Gabby. Um, the dog, who you might not hear, but she's right here with me, um, and also <laughs> I want to say shout out to Kita, who's also here with us in the studio. So, um, thank you for bringing everybody. Um, so while um, I was prepping a little bit for this chat today, um, I was reading a few interviews and watching what I could find, um, and it said that you you said that you started DJing in ninety. 1983, or like mid-80s, if I'm correct. That's Some about, right. Yeah. Yep, that's about so right. That means um, it's 40 years of DJing.
1: Pretty much. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Me d- DJing that early doesn't mean I was in a club. <laughs> it means, no. it yeah, means yeah, yeah. I was at home figuring it out
0: (laughs) yeah but 40 years is 40 years so I just wanted to to say congratulations because it's just it seems just like a number but if you really think about it that's a a long time and a lot of things can happen within 40 years
1: yeah that's that's very true
0: yeah so um one of the questions that I originally wanted to ask you was what would you have become if you would have not started DJing have you ever Was there something that ever crossed your mind other than DJing?
1: Um, Not really, because I knew I wanted to pursue music at an early age. Even before DJing was a thing, I wanted to be a drummer or some kind of musician in a band as a (laughs) kid. Um, So the whole notion of being a DJ, or DJing in general, for me came into existence like, as far as I re- as far back as I can remember, like you know late seventies, uh, but in hindsight, you know, even as a young adult, uh when I think about my life, if I hadn't pursued music, I'd probably be some kind of social worker you know? oh yeah yeah dealing with uh I, I love helping people.
0: Oh, nice
1: yeah, and That's giving and giving advice and you know. That kind
0: of thing. Okay, I'll keep that in my mind for my question later that I have. Um, And then within the same interview, I think that I read, you also said that um, I believe after you came out of college, you you told yourself that you was never going to work for anybody else other than yourself. Does that, um, I'm assuming based on what you just said, that means that you already knew that music was your thing, that you... Only wanted to be in music, or what trans? Um, what made you say that at a young age? Cause going out of college, it's what twenty something, yeah, early twenties? Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, I kind of figured out how the world works pretty early, and how the system works, and um, me knowing the power that I had. Like you know, f- really, I started pursuing music as a career path uh in the mid 80s trying to become and you know part of a hip-hop group you know trying to get signed to labels so Mm -hmm. I've been going into studios since 1985-86 recording demos uh, with various groups and then eventually uh you know after years of trying to get signed to all these labels and shopping demos and stuff uh I realized that and coming this close too like uh, you know, I recently had, uh, you played for me, right? On the boat. Uh Do yes. these journey parties. But I had Merlin Bob you. also play uh, for for my journey event. And ironically, he was working at East West Records. And it's because of him that I almost, my group Jigmasters almost got signed to a deal in 94. Wow. And in, in 90, yeah, 90, yeah, 94, that was the year. And it was a big letdown, not not in his control at all. It was mm-hmm. just corporate entities merging and um the people that were handling my project uh got fired. So I was like, you know what? This it's time to go independent. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, you know, me and my 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 MC Krim and business partner we formed the label, and we decided to press our own records, and that was really the beginning of our independence. My independence as mm-hmm. an artist and an independent thinker, and you know, freeing, free thinking, and just you know, thinking outside of the system and figuring out how I am going to navigate this this new world in music without having to answer to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, I knew pretty early on that music was going to be my career path and uh, that I would be in control of it. But this is after so many years of being let down. I mean, you know, there was a time where I just dreamed of being this major label artist, becoming this, you know, DJ, producer, star in the realm of hip hop and, you know, all of that stuff, videos and all that stuff, but... (laughs) Independence was really rocking in the mid-90s, especially, you know, around the time of like Wu-Tang, like when mm-hmm. Wu-Tang started, you know, when they put out Protect Your Neck and they, you know, shopped, put their records out in all the record, local record stores in New York before they got signed aloud. That was one of the the, the testaments to independence and hip hop and how you can really make it on your own. Mm-hmm. Um and even prior to that, you know, there were so many amazing independent hip-hop records that come out, um, even in the 80s. I mean, even in the birth of hip-hop, you know, uh, when I think about all the early rap 12 inches that came out before labels really cared, before the industry thought that they could make all this money from it, it was really part of the culture. It was just independence, you know, mm-hmm. putting music out yourself. So that's kind of the way I thought about
0: mm-hmm.
1: myself in that way as well.
0: That's dope. Were you? I just, I'm just curious. Were your parents, um, at some point, you know how sometimes people are like, oh, music. I don't know. They want, you know, they want the kids to have, make sure that they can have a, not a career, but you know, support themselves. Let's put it that way. Were your parents, in, in one way or the other, that they lean towards one or the other? Were they like super supportive, or or, or were some? What it like, so mm.
1: my, my dad, rest in peace, um, was a very hardworking human being. You know, he was basically working with cars, fixing cars as a body mechanic wow. as early as 13, 14 years old. So he didn't really understand uh, being a creative mm-hmm. and, ma- and making a living off of it. It wasn't until, like, maybe the final years of his life where he where he really got it, um, because he kinda saw the fruits of my labor pay off
0: mm-hmm. in a
1: very special way, actually. Um and, you know, he just didn't get it. It's like he didn't understand how you can make a living from playing records. He just didn't get it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and my mom has always been supportive. She always saw the vision. Um even, you know, to the degree of schooling and making sure I got into, like, the right schools that supported talent. However, when I became an adult um, and I wasn't bringing in money, like, after college, you know, I, when I came home from school, I went to SUNY binghamton upstate New York, um, and I w- came back to Brooklyn. I was living on my own all that time, and mm-hmm. I came back to live with her until mm-hmm. I was able to be on my own, and she didn't really understand the instability mm-hmm. And she knew I was in the music, you know, she always supported it. But uh, I already had my mindset. I saw my path. I knew that this was my way to empowering myself, right? But she didn't really get it. So I used to get some flat, you know. I used to, <laughs> She used to be like, you know, help out with the bills. And I did what I could. But, uh, you know, I think she gets it now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now? I she gets it, yeah, I
1: think she gets it, yeah.
0: That's amazing. Um, at what point, what did you tell yourself? That, and obviously you just said you always saw the path, right? But at what point um, were you confident or confirmed to yourself that, oh, actually I'm making a living off of this. This is my path or the dream that I had for myself is actually becoming true.
1: Um, I would say turning early turning points uh, were, well, it's parallel with gigs and the record business. So um, I paid my way through college doing parties. So for four years, you know, I pretty much played all of the uh, black fraternity and sorority parties on campus, off campus, and that actually spread to other universities upstate New York, Syracuse, Oswego, Cornell, um for three four years wow I did radio I also did radio uh and uh Binghamton Community College I mean Binghamton it well it was SUNY Binghamton's radio station but it was broadcasted throughout the Binghamton community okay uh and this was a great time too because I was breaking a lot of what would be considered golden era hip-hop and even R&B like I broke soul to soul and Oh, wow. Played a lot of, you know, in Vogue, Hold, it, Hold On, and all these great records, Tribe, Wu-Tang, all that stuff. Were in, those records were introduced because of me on air. Oh, wow. Um, and then <clears throat> once, I, once I came home, um, started getting booked for really good events with dealing with, uh, you know, great promoters in New York. But at the same time, try still pursuing making records Mm -hmm. and the turning point on the industry side was, uh, I landed two great remixes. So because of my situation at East West records, uh, you know, I had a demonstration deal with East West and that's where the label gives you a budget to go in the studio Mm -hmm. and cut some songs and figure out like if it's worth signing you. And, um, you know, Merlin Bob was heading east west at the time. Although the Jigmasters, my group Jigmasters, our deal fell through, I still had great relationships with the people at the label. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my brother Rick, uh, Rick Brown. Uh, so I, got, I ended up doing a DOS FX remix. That oh. was the first remix that I ever did. And that came to me in late 94, came out early 95. And then later on in, uh, in the year of 95, I did a remix for De La Soul for Stakes is High. Okay. So, and then I also had a big record on the club market called Everybody Bounce. For those listening um, who may know the record, it was a big club record. Everybody, a lot of people th- thought Fluck Master Flex made the record because mm-hmm. he was playing it and dropping <laughs> bombs on it every week. And I still hear it today and it still turns the party up.
0: Is that what the yellowish kind of. Um, uh cover no it's no? W- it's
1: white. white it's white with black okay. letters it almost okay. looks like a bootleg, but it was it came out on uh freeze records which is Todd Terry's label and it goes bounce bounce bounce
0: everybody just
1: bounce bounce oh okay bounce. so that was a big record it was huge so that was kind of like my
0: I didn't know that was you
1: yeah, a lot of people don't a lot of people don't know that is my record and that actually broke before the remixes. Because I recorded it in the summer of '94 with my actually with my DJ partner that I did all the parties with mm-hmm. in Binghamton, uh, Daddy Culture A.K.A. Ninkanza. He he played the reggae and I played everything else, and okay. we would go back and you know back and forth between genres. But reggae was his specialty dance hall. But he also produced, so I went in the studio with him that summer in wow. Flatbush and cut the record, cut an EP. Uh, and our crew, our DJ crew, was called Rude Rhythms. So the Rude Rhythms Experiment, Volume 1, is this the EP that that bounce record came out on. And that was my encounter with Todd Terry, which, you know, I got my first SB-1200 from Todd. And this was the same machine that he cut, like, all his early, you know, club records, his house records on, That's Girl, crazy. i House You, all of those records. He cut those records on that machine, so he gifted it to me. Wow. So I had a, you know, I had some pretty stellar beginnings and that um that's crazy Yeah, sorry
0: i had to l- continue i'm just like looking and i have to let it sink in <laughs> right
1: right right and then you know i have a that that relationship also kind of ties in with my relationship with, with kenny dope mm-hmm. because kenny and todd came up together in brooklyn you know he's one of the you know forefathers of bridging hip-hop with house music And we share a lot of commonality with music and collecting records and blah, 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 blah. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when I told him my story about the the SP-1200, there was a connection there. Because on that SP-1200 drum machine, there was a sticker that read, uh, Todd Terry Still Rocks. So when I met Kenny about 95, 96, and I told him the story of how Todd gave me the machine. And I told him about the sticker. He was like, you know who put that sticker on the machine? He was like, I put that sticker on the machine. I was like, Wow, that's crazy. I wish I kept the sticker on the machine. I took it off. Oh,
0: you took it off before I, you knew. I, it. Yeah, <laughs> I wish
1: I, I wish I kept it. But yeah, so all of these mm-hmm. connective uh, lines kind of shaped my, you know, it laid it laid the foundation for my thought, my thinking, and my my journey. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can do this. I could definitely
0: oh, do this. Okay, cool. Um, you just mentioned Brooklyn three times. We um, said Flatbush and then Brooklyn where a lot of musicians, um, producers, DJs come from. And I wanted, the podcast is called Dance to the Music and we're going to talk about the dance in a little bit. But I'm curious because um, as we talked earlier before, you're born and raised, if I'm not mistaken, yes. in Brooklyn. You still live in Brooklyn. Um, and how, number one, the question is was the borough and the city has that ever played a, a, an important part in your um i guess artistry i could use that word and number two if so how has that changed over the last 40 years that you've been involved in music for for you obviously we all know brooklyn has changed and the city has changed a lot um but just for you i wonder how do you still get inspired by the city <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, so to answer question number one...
0: Yeah, I know, there was a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm
1: just dialing back. So, um, yeah, of course, you know, environment, uh, what I experienced growing up, uh, especially in the form of block parties and um, house parties, all played a major role. And especially, like, during the uh, La- Labor Day weekend, we always have our Caribbean Day Festival Labor mm-hmm. Day, you know, parade... And I have vivid memories of just being on Eastern Parkway, parked up uh, with my with my dad and family and uh, just hearing sounds.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, all the sound systems blasting, not just Caribbean music back in the days, but we would hear like disco, we would hear breakbeats, we would hear, you know, all of the things that make up the kind of things that we like today, the kind of music that we love today, the foundation of that. I heard that growing Mm up. Um, And I talk about this a lot when I talk about my past, but uh, there was a crew called the Laser Rock Disco who were the local DJ heroes on my street in Crown Mm -hmm. Heights. They lived, uh, well, most of them lived on my block. And they did all the block parties uh, during the summer Um, and I would always be the kid on the sideline just staring and, you know, witnessing and absorbing everything, and they had these uh, speakers built out of pyramids, shaped like pyramids. I'd never seen anything like that ever since then. Um, So, you know, yeah, all of these um, experiences for sure shaped who I am, and also... Having Latin American Caribbean descent Mm -hmm. parents from Panama and growing up in Brooklyn, which is culturally, you know, rich, other sounds outside of what is considered American music Mm -hmm. uh, definitely played a part as well, Mm -hmm. uh, especially Caribbean music.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So yeah.
0: Is there any um, anything specific in? I'm just asking out of curiosity something very specific to Panama when it comes to music that we don't know about, that I don't know about. Well. Or when you say Caribbean sound, you mean steel drums? Being
1: being black and um, Panamanian means that there is Caribbean lineage Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to Spanish from Spain. Um, Trinidad, Tobago, Barbados, Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the music was being birthed from the Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latin community, uh, Caribbean community in Panama, it's kind of mesh, it's a mesh of soul, funk,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Latin, all you know, mashed together. It's kind of like, it's almost akin to Brazilian music, you know, Brazilian soul. Mm -hmm. Same, same kind of vibe. Um, Because they were kind of emulating what was happening here in the States with soul Mm -hmm. and infusing Latin rhythms, African rhythms, Afro-Cuban rhythms, Mm -hmm. all all mixed together. So it's very unique. It's very special. Um, Okay. Funky. There's a lot of soulful and funky stuff coming out of, coming out of Panama.
0: Okay. Cool. Um, and then the, to speak about the second part of the question, how do you feel about Brooklyn now? Or, I mean, we not you talked about when you grew up, and now I'm saying, what about now? There's a whole, you know, it's a lot of years in between, but I'm just curious. Uh,
1: yeah, Brooklyn now. I don't want to, you know... I mean, the reality is gentrification is real, right? So anytime you have new elements coming into a neighborhood that was predominantly black and brown um, in certain in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn anyway, that dynamic will change and it will also change the party scene it will mm-hmm. change the dynamics of uh you know what what the d j outlook is uh but it's great to see i'm 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 all for change if the history can still be connected so um when I see certain DJs still trying to hold on to what makes a great DJ mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of studying the history and studying the past and actually engaging with the OGs in the game. Um It, it kind of gives me a sense of hope.
0: Okay.
1: And it also, I mean, nothing, nothing stays the same, right? So there's always going to be new, new crowds, that think differently. They weren't there in the, back in the days to understand what some of the classics are or even how the music connects to them because they're experiencing music differently, mm-hmm. you know, um, compared to how we did. I mean, the whole notion of going to a club in here and hearing like four or five DJs playing one night, that's a relatively new thing compared to how, how, uh, we experienced DJs back in the days. Like, uh, what made great DJs back then is one DJ all night or maybe a opening mm-hmm. DJ and the headliner plays four, five, six hours on an amazing sound system and you get to experience the journey. Um, and then the crowd kind of gets to adapt to that DJ's sound, mm-hmm. that their vibe, their thought process. Um, and we don't really have too much of that anymore. So... Uh, Unless The DJ has The new DJ has some kind of residency Somewhere Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, Where they can tell their story
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, But Again like You know I look at uh, Muscle Cars for example right Mm -hmm. Love those guys I love what they're doing But I know that they were reared In the right direction by the late Great Carlos Sanchez who Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know is from the original School and you can tell when they're playing that they're bringing in that essence, mm-hmm. but they also have their own movement and they do sprinkle in their own, they have their own kind of uh, story to tell yeah. in the midst of it. So it's not old per se, you know, they're just reinventing the wheel mm-hmm. uh, and holding on to tradition which is important. I think any artist, DJ, singer, producer, whatever it is, it's important to study the history.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um I had I'm going to skip here a few questions, but since you touched on the the, the history part, what is something that um you would advise seeing some of the younger DJs, um, not just muscle cars, but other younger, oh, I shouldn't say younger, maybe newer DJs. Right. Um What um, advice would you give somebody who is who was not there, f- you know, 40 years ago, where the music was heard on every block? And there are some pockets where you can, you know, especially right. in the summer, you can hear it, but they don't have that... Um, yeah, they don't have that experience of sneaking into the clubs when they were younger or right, right. things like that.
1: Well, it depends on, I think, the direction of that question p- probably needs to be fine-tuned a little bit because are we talking about the, addressing the, these younger DJs as their, like, what is their focus for DJing? Like, how should they, in, you know, interpret the music? Or, I, I think... I think what makes any DJ great really is their story and how they play their music, how, they, how the music relates to them and how it comes across to the dance floor. Um, and I think an understanding of music in general is very important. So my biggest thing with any DJ, not even just young DJs, but if you love DJing in general, is really to study music, Mm -hmm. not just the genre that you love, um, and try to be as open-minded as possible because there's so many things. There's there's, there's a science to it. When when you're a DJ, there's literally a lot to think about. It's not just about bang-bang. It's not just about playing the hottest tracks. It's really about, you know your connection and some people just kind of play music on a real surface level they're not really internalizing the music and i think if you understand music in general that kind of helps with your with your djing um because you understand what mood is you understand what tone is you understand temperament you understand like how to how to tell a story you you actually have so much power when you're in the booth, mm-hmm. you, you're you in control of people's emotions. And some people don't really get that. And that's why people on the floor may not, you know, that, that 360 degree of communication, there's a gap there. They may not feel it because you're not feeling it. Mm. You really got to feel it. Right. And it comes across, you know, it really mm-hmm. does translate. um what you give back, it comes back to you. Some people are so internal when they play that they forget they don't pay attention. they yeah. don't care like they just in their own head. Um, so I think it's important really to st- does that do make sense? No like, no,
0: absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah I think
1: it's important like I love all kinds of music
0: mm-hmm. you oh, know yeah. I
1: love it all, you know, and when I'm playing, depending on the party or the genre. I really do put, I immerse myself in the music and I try to play those genres to the best of my ability as if I'm part of whatever that scene is. So if I'm doing a hip-hop set, if I'm doing a dance hall set, if I'm doing a disco set, if I'm doing an R&B set, if I'm doing a house set, I'm, I'm on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. I'm in the booth, but I'm also on the dance floor because I, wanna, I want the people... I want to feel what the people feel.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting to say, for, y- for you to say, you want to feel what the people feel and not, I want them to feel what I feel. That already goes back to you, I want to be a social worker, I want to help people. Yeah, yeah, kind
1: yeah, of- I mean, I, that kind of makes sense. I never thought about that. I mean, obviously, yes, you know, it does start with, it starts from within, right? So if I'm playing something, I have to feel it first. Mm-hmm. I really do try to take, I, you know, I made a conscious decision, uh, years ago to be one of those DJs that uh, really, I play what I love and I stray away from gigs where I have to lock into top 40 or whatever's hot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, fortunate enough to have been able to do that and just kind of curate specialty events and themes because I feel like I'm, I have a responsibility to maintain a certain frequency Mm -hmm. positive frequency with people on the dance floor um and i think it's paid off uh but i also feel like i'm i'm doing a service providing a service for people yeah um so i guess that again it does go back to what i said (laughs) earlier because you know that's that's just how i i view it
0: yeah um i want to talk go back to um that moment where if i um did my research correctly, where you said you, one of your first, or the first, um, clubbing experience for you, was at Paradise Garage, before, shortly before it closed, I believe, yeah. um, and I'm wondering, I'm assuming that was in your teens, at some mm-hmm. point, I'm wondering, if uh, w- people like me, we only hear about the Paradise Garage, right, and we think that this is the ultimate, or was the ultimate, um, party experience, and, I'm wondering, after you went there, did you find yourself chasing that moment or like that experience or the feeling, whatever happened? Did you try to find it again afterwards or were you just like, okay, that was the Paradise Garage? And were you not aware of what it eventually would mean?
1: I think my experience at the Paradise Garage, um, it did change my life, Uh, mainly because... I felt like prior to going there, I dreamt it. I I dreamt I dreamt it through the music. Uh, you know, Frankie Crocker, WBLS used to play a, a, quite a, a great deal of the records that were played there, and mm-hmm. that's what I kind of studied. Uh, radio was very important to me. Mm-hmm. And WBLS, uh, ninety-eight point seven Kiss, Shep Pettibone, Master Mixes, ninety-two KTU. Those are all. Stations that I listened to, I used to record the mixes onto 8-track tape, cassette tape, study them, right? Then when I was able to go out and actually hear DJs in the street wherever I could, study that. Then we also, I also had Empire Roller Skating Rink, which was, you know, very legendary skating rink mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, close right. to where I live. And the DJ that was playing there, I know T. Scott, legendary T. Scott used to play there. I don't think I ever caught him. I don't know who was in the booth. You didn't really see the DJ. But these are all early DJ experiences and records and all of this music. So prior to the garage, I was like, man, I, d- I just always wondered what it was like. I was also collecting and getting records. My dad used to buy me records. And some of these records had Larry LeVan's name on it. Okay. Right. So I was just like, man. And then I also had older friends that were members because I was, I was the young buck. I was mm-hmm. the young dude in the crew. That, that went, right? And that's how I ended up getting and getting in was through some of the older guys that already gone there. And um, it changed my life because it was almost, it was everything I dreamt of and more. I was intimidated on the dance floor, you know, but the sound was unbelievable. And my one of my memories is riding home on the Ford train, coming back to Brooklyn. Deaf, like I couldn't oh, hear God. anything. My ears were shot. I heard nothing but ee, Oh god, the that's whole so ride. dangerous. It was, loud. it was really loud in there, but you felt it. Um and do I chase that did I Yeah, I think every DJ that went to that club or every music lover that went to that club till this day. The reason <laughs> why they're still partying is because they're chasing that. Mm-hmm. They want to feel that. Okay. They want to keep feeling it. Um, nothing felt like that ever. Ever. You know, we've come close with several venues, um, several parties. You know, I'm also, I started going to The Loft way later with Mancuso in the 2000s. Different experience. Uh, And I think by now we know one of the reasons why Larry even existed as a DJ was because of Mancuso and The Loft, right? But it's different, you know. It was a little more wholesome because the records weren't, being mixed they were just playing from beginning to end but that's actually where that going to the loft actually really taught me to pay more attention and not be so fast mixing and let the records breathe body and soul as well mm-hmm. you know going to hear Danny Crivet, Francois Cage, uh, Joe, Joe Clausel, it's not always about the mix it's always about telling the story and letting the records breathe. So I applied all of that stuff to every genre that I play. Granted, yes, sometimes you gotta party rock and you gotta go hard Mm -hmm. and you gotta cut through records and stuff, but when the time is right and you let the perfect song with great lyrics that everyone knows play from beginning to end, Mancuso taught me something. I actually got to uh, bond with him when he worked at a store called the Dub Spot. And you know.
0: The that was on Fourteenth Street, or that he, used to be on Fourteenth yes. Street. he worked there. No,
1: no, no. It was a record store. Oh, okay. In sorry, the early, sorry. early, late nineties, early two thousands.
0: See, I just showed my age. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and I lost my train of thought. But uh,
0: you said you learned something from from him when he worked there.
1: Yeah, well, he basically just taught me about sound and how important sound is, and. Um, but really, the most important thing was, you know, the artists didn't record music. The, the the music that's recorded by musicians and artists, they didn't record it with the intention of you cutting it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise, it, yeah, otherwise, records would be, you know, a verse and a hook and then done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these mm-hmm. songs were musicians in the room bouncing energies and ideas off of each other, energies coming up with all of these arrangements and production and amazing tracks, all this stuff. And then as a DJ, you're so impatient to get to the next record, you're, mm-hmm. you're just not even taking that into regard. So I've, I've been trying to make this conscious decisions in the last 20 years when the time is right and the party is right to just chill like have patience and let the record breathe i just mm-hmm. played uh the clubhouse jamboree mm-hmm. in prospect park uh this past sunday and you know there's a lot of seasoned clubgoers there <laughs> <laughs> uh and i like to sprinkle in classics every once in a while just to just to keep everybody keep those folks happy and i played uh H- hot shot by Kevin young let the whole thing play from beginning to end and you just felt the entire park light wow. up you know just certain nuances in the record when she screams the instrumentation at the end of the song like all of these things are magical you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying like you really feel if you really feel music and you really absorb it 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 really touches the soul mm-hmm. Um, did I ask all your questions?
0: Yeah, no, okay. you did because I well you answered more than that one question because one of them <laughs> was like y- you know going from playing at block parties and playing in people's backyards and then going to then starting eventually playing in clubs, I would assume that you would have to adjust your Djing or like it's it's two different environments to me, so I was wondering if you had to adjust, but you just explained how what you learned and what you excuse me, what you studied, and I'm also assuming that you applied those then further, right?
1: Right. But you know what's funny is I also have this other side, which is the hip-hop side. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which I don't, you know, I didn't really speak on that much. Mm. And, of course, you know, hip-hop is youthful culture. I grew up in it. Uh, I wanted to call myself a graffiti writer at one point. Can't say that I was nice at it. I did a little pop-locking and b-boying growing up. Uh, I actually, rapped at one point. There's 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 cassette tapes with me rapping. I believe on it. that, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: and of course, DJing and uh, making beats and so on and so forth. Uh, but on the DJ side, I have a whole other set of inf- DJ influences, and you know, I I appreciate the the uh, turntableist uh, aesthetic. You mm-hmm. know, I dabbled in that as well. You know. I appreciate it there's an art there's an art to it, yeah. but when it comes to parties, for me that's special that's a little different from doing mm-hmm. all the doing all that stuff okay. that's for me, that's always more for show and making an impression on people that get it and also other technical you know turntables right. uh being a quality party rocking dj is different. Mm-hmm for me it's just different
0: right um you just mentioned a little bit that you you said you dabbled um but I know you'll be boy at heart and I've actually seen you also get down a little bit and I can't remember when it was but I did see it um so my question to you now we can speak about the dance part is how important for you as a DJ when you when you're in the booth are the dancers oh hundred percent do you
1: (laughs) hundred (laughs) percent hundred percent it's like the most important thing okay.
0: for me. Yeah. Okay. So important. Right. Because I'm I'm asking this question a lot and you know, even I started as a dancer so I I I always have that in mind. But sometimes I I realize that sometimes people they don't you know, they don't show it as much. So I'm wondering how for you as a seasoned, very, very experienced DJ, how you feel about what is your first thing when you start a set? Even like, the dance floor is not packed yet, so how do you right. even communicate well, with with the dance floor?
1: You know, it's uh, believe it or not. I, sometimes I still get butterflies even till this day.
0: Oh, that's a good thing, though. It I could think. be
1: yeah, it could be the, the the most crowded event, or it could be a real intimate event. And there's heads there, and it's always about, what am I going to start with? What Mm -hmm. is the first record going to be? What am I going to do? (laughs) Because once you set the tone, it kind of, it's kind of, you know, I'm not going to say it's always easy, but it could be really easy from there once you lock in with the first couple of records, because then you kind of know what could work you know sometimes it's difficult crowds that are hard to read and you're like man I don't know what they want so you're you're kind of like all over the place um but usually after the first 2 3 records and I see there's movement and engagement um I'm pretty secure you know I think the most important thing really is going into the party and knowing what what your crowd is mm-hmm. and having the kinds of Music, the kind of records or music or tracks or whatever files that <laughs> will speak to them for the duration, um, being prepared. Mm-hmm. But you have to know your audience.
0: Mm-hmm. How is that? Um, I can imagine, for example, um, going to different countries or different cities that you may not play a lot, right? Or you go there for the first time. I can't imagine that being more difficult because you kind of don't know the crowd or you don't even know the place. What do you do in a situation like like that? I mean, I guess for you now, it doesn't really happen that much. No, be- it could still it happen still because happen.
1: there's always new territories. There's always new venues. There's new There's countries that I still haven't been to yet. Mm-hmm. But even for the ones that um, I do frequent, you know, there's the crowds change, you know, generations of party goers change. Like there's a whole new demographic, age demographic on the dance floor now. The, f- the 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds and up, got families, kids, jobs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They don't go out as much. So you kind of got to tap into what this new crowd like, what they mm-hmm. want to hear. Um, and really it's just about speaking to the promoter getting a grip on what the party is about, especially for me, like I play so many different things. Um, it's really important for me to know ahead of time what I'm, what I'm getting into <laughs> uh, so I can be prepared. Uh, and really preparation is key. Just kind ahead, ahead mm-hmm. of knowing ahead of time what you're going to do.
0: Okay. Have you noticed um, the, the last couple of years, I, Um, have you noticed any changes on the dance floor after the pandemic, besides people getting older and like the generations always shifting, but have you noticed as far as like a different audience or a different behavior of the audience?
1: It feels like people, well, at least in New York anyway, and other places I've been to, people were so tired of being locked down or isolated. Uh, People have; they seem to be more excited and more hyped and more engaged and mm-hmm. just happy to be out. Um, what was I? I was looking at something. I think I was looking at old posts on Instagram uh, on my on my feed from the pandemic, maybe two three years ago. Of, I think I posted maybe some party clips that happened pre pandemic. And reading comments and people saying, "Man, I I hope we can party again. Mm. I hope I, I'm so tired of, I'm scared. I don't know if we'll ever get to do this again. Stuff like that. So I'm That's like, crazy. man, it's, it's almost like we're in a whole new world now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm I'm kind of feeling that with 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 the events and the parties. Like surprisingly, it took a while for things to kind of turn around. Like mm-hmm. last year. Uh, 2022, 2021, when things started to open up, it was really iffy, like people weren't certain, but now it feels like people are ready again Mm -hmm. to be out and partying amongst each Mm -hmm. other.
0: Okay. Um, I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. Um, One of the topics that comes up in these interviews is um, mentorship. And um, you you already mentioned way earlier that you said you like helping people. But I wonder, how do you feel about the the term mentorship? And what, first of all, what does it mean to you? And how do you feel about it? Um, especially given 2023, if younger people would like to learn something, right? You can technically find everything, I would say technically, um, online. And you can teach yourself all the programs and all the things online, but only to a certain degree. So I'm wondering if you personally if you if you are mentoring people or have mentored people and what do you think about the importance of right. having a mentor or being a mentor to somebody
1: <clears throat> I think mentorship is important I'm I can't say that I'm mentoring anyone directly but I'm pretty positive that there are DJs learning through my experience and mm-hmm. my journey now the same way I did coming up looking up to the veterans that were around before me. And I think that's always the best experience. Um, Going out and studying not only the booth, not only what the DJ is doing and playing, how they're playing it, but also studying the dance floor and seeing how certain things work, you know, and certain uh, elements of DJing, whether it's how records are being transitioned or, just little nuances and how the crowd responds to it. Mm-hmm. I would love to mentor. Um, I just wish I could create. I mean, eventually I will find a way to have some kind of dedicated uh, mentorship program. Um, I'm just real crazy <laughs> these days with gigs and stuff. But, uh, you know, I when people do approach me about it, what I tell them immediately is come hear me play. And mm-hmm. go out and hear other people that you admire, or just go exploring,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, um, especially for up-and-coming DJs, and then you know, it doesn't matter what the genre is, like if you're into specific kinds of music, then go out and study the ones who are playing those records uh, in a great way, like big, you know, mm-hmm. doing it big, and get a grip on what makes it work. Because mm-hmm. if it's working for them, chances are there's a science to it. And I'm, I guess I got to be specific because post-pandemic is kind of a different thing now because there's a whole, there's a there's a uh, optic kind of uh, precedence that's being set for a lot of DJs coming up now, post-pandemic, Uh Where you know they've made a name for themselves during the pandemic, and now they're getting booked based on the optics. But it's important to study what happened prior Mm -hmm. to that because, uh, we are walking souls, (laughs) and that's really what you Mm -hmm. what people respond to is the music and how it's being presented, and if. You became blind one day and you couldn't see the DJ. What's really going to cut through?
0: Right. You still need to feel something. Right. Mm, Yeah. Um, That definitely... um, That's definitely important. And I also wonder if... um, I guess that ties into a question of, like... You kind of touched on it already. What the importance is between the dancers and the DJs, right? Um, I'm wondering... Knowing that you started DJing so early, or I should say, at a very young age, were you also the person that also like went out a lot? Oh yeah. Yeah, because uh. and you know sometimes <laughs> DJs they, they they go and they play, but they don't really like they're not a clubhead, they're not right out there on the dance floor. But right. that's I was wondering if you like.
1: Well, it, you know, it was exciting times too. So mm-hmm. we're talking about an era where these scenes, these these club scenes, party scenes, was fresh, new, young and exciting and all we really wanted to do was dress fresh (laughs) go to the party and have fun and listen to great music that made you dance Mm. uh and and i have to i have to reiterate made you dance because that was a thing to do back in the days like we kind of in certain sets of society we kind of lost the dance like Mm. you know that's why i love house music so much because the the nature of the music is for dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean going to a club and being on your phone, waving the phone to the DJ. And I'm talking about moving, like engaging with the dance floor, people on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to go back to your question, like, yeah, I went out a lot. Now, you know, I it got interrupted because I went away to school. But when I had breaks and I would come home, I would go to clubs. But prior to that, in the late 80s, definitely went out it was great man it was Mm -hmm. you wanted to go and hear these great djs on these sound systems and playing all this new hot music Mm -hmm. you know and for me and a lot of a lot of us who came up in that time um what it did was it kind of fueled the dj the dj market and going to record stores it was a big community like you Mm -hmm. would go to the club you would hear a couple of records Uh, new records being broken and those records were ringing your head and the next day you're in the store trying to find those records
0: Mm -hmm. how do you I mean I have an idea but it's just like for people who right who (laughs) people who grew up before Shazam and I include myself like we kind of like did you sing it at the at the record store or maybe the radio played it right and hopefully they told you what it is Um, but how did you find the record on the next day
1: So humming a few lines or a few notes uh, definitely helped. There was, there was, there's a store called Rock and Soul, Mm -hmm. right? And Benji, this is a brother who worked at the store for a very long time and he was a connoisseur. You would literally go in and hum a few notes and he'll be like, oh child, that record is not out yet. It's coming out in two weeks. He just played it off a of reel to reel. You have to wait. You know, or he'll be like, okay, that's such and such. It's over there in that bin. Very, very knowledgeable. Wow. And um, and that's what we did. I have a memory of going to see DJ Disciple um at a club called The Ritz. This was like '89 or '90. And he played this record called uh uh Pacific by 808 State, which is like a you know a classic UK soulful techno record. Never heard it in my life until he played it that night, and it was it was uh, you know just amazing, astounding. And then the next the next day or that weekend, or maybe a week after, I went to a store. This used to be the this, this store called Downtown Records, and he was in the store, and I was like, "Yo, I didn't I didn't even know Disciple." I was like, yo, you played this record last week. And I was young. I was probably like 19 years old, mm-hmm. right? But I was like, yo, you played this record. And I, I sang it to him, you know. And he was like, oh, that's such and such and such. And pointed to the wall. The record was right there on the wall, grabbed it. I mean,
0: you know, you can't beat ex- like you, can, you can't no, beat experiences can. like that. <laughs> no, you can't, can't really. beat it. <laughs> no, no, for real, you can't. I was just going to ask, like, what excites you these days? Ter- as far as, like, in, in terms of playing, um, but also bigger, like, looking into the future, you've played 40 years, what is something that, um, you to still do in 20 years?
1: Wow. Well, I've been fortunate enough to kind of develop these special theme events with my wife, keita uh... Michael Prince parties called Soul Slam, uh, wonderful music tributes called Wonderful. Uh, we do a '90s flavors party, and I bring these parties up because they've taken on their uh, their own life, and you know, I don't see myself slowing down from doing those anytime soon. Like in twenty years, uh, you know, I do plan to slow down, but these tributes for me and other tributes like them uh that I that I play has a bigger meaning because it's really about keeping the legacy of these great artists going for generations to come even after some of you know the people that have grown up with them have you know, grown older or passed on. It's about the next Mm -hmm. so that we can keep the history going. Um, But just in general, what excites me about playing is new music. You know, I love I love exploring and, you know, finding new records, new music, new artists and uh, supporting them Mm
0: -hmm. as well.
1: You know, I'll, I'll I would buy something if I know the person that made the record. You know, I would still download it or buy the album, whatever it is, uh, because I'm an artist and I Mm -hmm. know the struggle. Right. So I and I also feel it's important to play them and find ways to play them. I think Twitch has been amazing Mm -hmm. uh, as a medium, as a way to uh, break a lot of new music as well. Um, So, yeah. And then technology does play a role. I'm not anti-technology, though I love my vinyl and I love playing records and buying records. I appreciate some of the uh, technical advancements that have come out, like with Serato Stems, for example, big Mm -hmm. up Serato, um, where you can isolate instruments live. It's been freaking people out on the dance floor, like literally. (laughs) Because they'll just hear a song that they know and an element from it just disappear or, you know, a, a track that, Everyone knows, and there's no instrumental for it. Then I'll just mute the vocal. And they're Mm -hmm. like, especially if you're a DJ, you know the record. You're like, what? What happened? (laughs) (laughs) What's going on here? Or blending, like taking, you know, live on the fly, acapellas, making acapellas with stems, and then throwing it over another, another instrumental from another record, another Mm -hmm. artist altogether. Just doing freaky stuff like that, you know, just keeping the dance floor okay interesting.
0: That's cool. You actually just answered a question that I have written out. I didn't. Um, I feel like you you've told the Stevie Wonder story how you met um, a few times already. Um, but I did wanted to um mention how besides you honoring him and and not just Stevie, also with your Prince and Michael parties, um, not just honoring him, his artistry, his music, and him him as a person, but yeah, you just said you you feel like there's a responsibility for you to keep the legacy alive, even though it's still, he's still here. Right. Right. How do you see us? Because unfortunately sometimes what I notice is that younger people really don't know some of the greats, which when you hear that, I'm like, Oh my God, really? But it's, 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 it's a reality. Right. So how do you see yourself um, being able to do that? Just with your parties, per se? Or like, is, are there other ways that you can imagine doing that? Well... And, and I, uh, if I might add, not maybe just with Stevie, but maybe for more artists of that generation. Right. Well, uh,
1: for those who may not know, I have a show on Apple Music. That's right, yes. And it's called I Here know. to Their Radio. And I'm doing exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I honor the greats every week on my show. It's a two-hour mix show, wow. and but I've also been fortunate enough to uh, conduct some interviews. Mm. So I've interviewed Gable and Huff for the 50th anniversary of Philadelphia wow. International. I interviewed Earthwind of Fire. I interviewed George Benson. Um, I interviewed Greg Philiganes, who was one of the key... Musicians, producers, keyboard players with Quincy Jones and Thriller. He played one of his first gigs was actually on Saws in the Key of Life." Wow I interviewed him for the 40th anniversary of "The Dude" a few years ago. Um, most recently, Nile Rogers for the 45th anniversary of Sashique. Uh, presently, my last episode was Roy Ayer's 83rd birthday. Yeah, I, saw that. Uh, I mean, even hip-hop, I've done a, all Pete Rock show. I've done an anniversary for Mob Deep. I interviewed Havoc. Um, you know, we just did a whole hip uh, hip hop fiftieth anniversary, and I went through a, a serious timeline all summer, where I started from the very beginning with the breaks, break beats, and I went into like indie disco rap. Then I went into the two prominent record labels, Sugar Hill Records and Joy Records uh, from that time. Then I went through the the uh, the period shortly after that, like the electro era. Uh, then I went into the sampling era. Then I went into like the early '80s. Then I went into the '90s, and I did the tr- I did like a native tongue show. I, I'm doing wow. it all. So all the music that I love, mm-hmm. and all the artists that should be acknowledged and celebrated, and even some that people may not even be aware that they should celebrate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm putting them. I'm highlighting them every week for every two week. hours. Yeah. For two How hours.
0: much preparation goes into it's that? A lot
1: of prep. It's a lot of prep mainly because of presentation. There's a lot of cutting up of the interview.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because it's not it's not a podcast. It's a radio show and mm-hmm. it's a mix show. So the, the mix, the music is prominent. But the words that are being spoken mm-hmm. are important. So I have right. to make sure that those cut through as well. Um, I did Nina Simone. Wow. Um, I did Patrice Russian. There's, there's a total of 100 and 39 shows. This Homework to, th- to, date, to date to date Homework. Yeah. Everybody go check <laughs> it
0: out. <laughs> um I have maybe only two more questions and then I think we have to uh, wrap it up. I I don't even know if that's possible giving your musical knowledge, but I ask every guest to name me three tracks that um that connects them to dance, no matter what genre, no matter what uh, era. So it's Three, if you can think of three.
1: Connect them to dance. Yes. Okay.
0: That could e- either be very easy for you or very difficult. Well, I don't of course, know. that's <laughs>
1: so wide. This, but I'll keep it really basic. And the ones that come to mind that always work and also translate to both styles on the hip-hop and the house side uh, is Give It Up, Turn It Loose. James Brown, the undubbed live version, uh, to be specific. Okay. Uh, hot music. Yeah. In <laughs> all of its remixes and reinterpretations, you know, all the versions, pretty much every version that I've heard rocks the dance floor. Because once they hear that piano lick, it's mm-hmm. like hands in the air and dancers get busy. Always, right? Um. Number three, let me think about that. Let me think about that real good, because that can go, that can go anywhere. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to go off the beaten path a little bit. I'm going to go with uh, New and Soul, George Benson, You Can Do It, Baby. Oh, yay. Because it's left of center, it's jazzy, it's funky. Obviously, George Benson's a legend, but you have to know how to dance to that record.
0: That is very true. Because it's
1: not for on the floor. It's not a. It's not a. It's like it's all over the place. A going on. It's funky. And it's you know you gotta you gotta know if you don't know how to dance then you're gonna be two stepping
0: for <laughs> the most part. Yeah. That is a very, that's a very dope choice. Um, And then my last question is actually just, is it, what do you like to share with us that I haven't touched on? And, uh, And I know I haven't touched on a lot of things because I think we could stay here for another couple of hours to really, really touch on like all the things you have done or just like a majority of the things that you have done. But something that people might not know about you or you haven't, haven't been asked. Or didn't want to share at a certain point. I don't know.
1: Wow. What could that be?
0: <laughs> and you don't have to either. But um, I'm just curious. You know, like, I obviously prepare questions for me to ask. Just so I have somewhat of a red line in there. But um, maybe there was something that we spoke about. But there was another point that you wanted to make.
1: Um. Well... The thing that comes to mind, I won't say it's about me, but I would say it's about music in general. Music is very precious and people have to realize that you you are what you eat, you are what you consume. And uh, it's important to have balance and it's important that we all function as human beings on the highest frequency possible because that really is what keeps you healthy not just food not just air not just good water but what you intake through your ears and how it you know Mm -hmm. translates to your to the parts of your body Mm -hmm. i think it's important that we um we listen to good music there's only two types it's good and bad (laughs)
0: very true and that i think we couldn't have ended it better or you could have not ended it better so thank you for that thank you you're welcome um i did not say in the beginning as i usually keep forgetting but i just wanted to shout out ladies of hip-hop and snipes who are um always providing us with the space uh, for me to come in here and set up shop and be here for a couple of hours that i appreciate that very much Thank you, DJ Spinner. I thank you for taking the time again and the energy that it takes to come here. Thank you, thank you. Shout out to Kita. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Maybe we should thank you for having me.
0: No, th- thank you. It's, it's an you, honor. You thank asked you. me some
1: things that I don't, I don't get asked, so that's, that's pretty, oh, pretty dope
0: that is very thank you I'm happy to hear that Um, yeah everybody listening check out all the episodes um, and yeah and check out all these radio shows on Apple Music that DJ Spinner did because I have two as well I'm not gonna lie I think I've listened to one or two maybe but 130 something you said
1: almost 140
0: yeah that's wild and I'm gonna end it at that thank you very much thank
1: you